Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of The Trail, from New Hampshire to the White House. Anyone who wants to be president has to come through New Hampshire first, and no one covers New Hampshire politics like WMUR. I'm WMUR political director Adam Sexton, and we hope you can join us every week for this podcast. All right, uh, Congressman Moulton, first day on the campaign trail here in New Hampshire. Uh, tell us what it's been like so far. It's been fantastic. And it's, this is a grassroots campaign, so we're starting small and we're doing service. Fundamentally, I'm applying for a job of serving the country. And I think we've forgotten that with the guy in the Oval Office right now, that this is a job about service. Um, it's why I'm running. It's why I joined the Marines, it's why I ran for Congress, and it's why I'm running for President of the United States. And service is what all these folks we've been meeting with and working with today are doing. It's inspiring. It's been an inspiring day. What do you think about the Liberty House there? Your fellow veterans, some of whom have fallen on hard times, uh, it's a place for them to sort of rebuild. It's an incredible model. In fact, the one thing that shocks me is that there aren't Liberty Houses everywhere. This is a model that we should expand because talking to these to these veterans um, and seeing how they're picking themselves up with the help of Liberty House, with with some serious help and guidance and, and some strict rules too, by the way, uh, has really transformed their lives. And it was inspiring, inspiring to work with them, inspiring to hear their stories. And I'm gonna be inspired to spread that model throughout the country if I'm elected president. You've been reticent in the past to discuss your status as basically a war hero. You received the Bronze Star in Iraq. Uh, does that become a part of your story here? Even as reluctant as you are to talk about that, that is a big part of who you are. Are voters going to hear about that from you? No, I'm never going to say I'm a war hero. I did what countless veterans throughout history have done. Um, but I am proud of my service, and I wouldn't be here uh, without that experience. So it's core to who I am, and it's a core part of, of, of why we're doing this. And I'll take every opportunity I can uh, to remind people on this campaign and to remind voters uh, that we've got to get back to serving the country, that we've got to make sure the next president is there to truly serve America. You're highlighting service, a big part of your campaign, but how do you defeat President Donald Trump? That's a question a lot of Democratic voters are asking. It's the number one question on, on voters' minds. And we start by talking about the issues where he's weakest. Those are security issues. He has a lot of national security plans. I think they're awful. But he has a plan to deal with China. He has a plan to deal with Russia, which is basically to cozy up to Putin. He has a plan to deal with North Korea, which is just to cozy up to Kim Jong-un. I think this is fundamentally wrong. But if we're not taking him on on these issues, then I'm really worried about our ability to defeat him. So that's what I'm bringing to this campaign. Now, I'm going to talk a lot about domestic issues, too. I'm going to talk about my plan for health care. I'm going to talk about my plan for tax fairness. I'm going to talk about my plan to grow jobs in the new economy, not just the old. But we've got to confront Trump where he's weakest and one of those places is on national security. Last question here. You're receiving VA health care. What needs to change about the VA? Where do I begin? I made a commitment to continue getting my health care at the VA even as a member of Congress because I said, look, if all these guys I served with are still getting their health care there, uh, then until we fix it, uh, I'm going to go there as well. And Adam, I could tell you a lot of stories. It's been a rough ride, even just for me personally. Uh, there are some VA doctors who are great. There are some VA employees who are there for the right reasons. Uh, but we know the stories of so many veterans who fall through the cracks. The first time I had surgery at the VA, they sent me home with the wrong medicines. That's wrong. I had a Marine in my platoon die of a heart attack when he was 30 from just taking medicines prescribed by the VA. He went there to get counseling. And instead of giving him the counseling that he needed, they just prescribed him pills. He's not even here anymore. Veterans should be getting the best health care in the world, period. And right now, despite Donald Trump's promises, it's not even close. 
Hey, Facebook recently made some changes. Now you're missing out on lots of content from WMUR, but it's easy to stay connected. Go to WMUR's Facebook page, tap follow, then see first. That's it. Just two taps brings you back in the know. 2016, Donald Trump became the first American president elected without any prior government or military experience. That outsider trend could continue, but in a decidedly different direction on policy and tone, if voters get behind the best-selling author and presidential candidate, Marianne Williamson, who is our guest here this Sunday morning. We appreciate you. you coming Thank in. Thank you so much. Thank you. So it's clear that your fame is an asset. People come to see you because they know you and they know your books. What do you say to voters who are suspicious, though, of the idea of having another, quote-unquote, celebrity president? Well, first of all, celebrity president, I mean, politicians who are well-known, that's a form of celebrity as well. And I think, as you said, the fact that someone has an audience is part of why they have an opportunity to do this uh, to begin with. I, th I think that the fact that I have written books, the fact that I have a 35-year career, which I'm really out there, is an asset. That's why I'm doing this. I've worked for 35 years helping people navigate the consequences of what has sometimes been very damaging, irresponsible behavior on the part of the political establishment. That's why I'm running. I realize that changing trauma to transformation is not just an issue in an individual's life, but particularly right now in our nation's life. Our nation is traumatized. And all that a nation is is a group of people. Part of what's wrong, part of what's um, inadequate in the conversation of the dominant political system is that it, it does not factor in the deeper emotional and psychological and spiritual realities of people. That's why both Republicans and, and Democrats were gobsmacked in the last presidential election by populist candidates. They weren't registering the level of economic despair so many people were experiencing. It's why we were gobsmacked by terrorism. We weren't registering the importance of the hate the people were feeling. This campaign is tapping into the love that people are feeling. Just as some have harnessed fear for political purposes, we're harnessing love for political purposes. And it's the only thing that can counter that fear. Uh, we have racism, bigotry, anti-Semitism, homophobia, Islamophobia that has been harnessed for political purposes. And I'm harnessing love and compassion, forgiveness, mercy, brotherhood and justice for political purposes. That's, to me, what we should be doing in this country. Now, parallel to being an author, you've been an activist as well, <coughs> among the first to get out there and really address the AIDS crisis. Explain your activism there in Los Angeles uh, in the earliest days, uh, uh, when people would not even go near that issue. Well, my work has been in the field of spirituality and personal transformation. And every spiritual and religious tradition has as its core the message of being there for those who suffer. There's no spiritual or religious path that gives any of us a pass on addressing the suffering of other sentient beings. So how can you talk about spirituality and love and then have all these people with AIDS, who, and at that time particularly, when the crisis was such that the c contracting the virus was an automatic death sentence at that time. So how could you be about love and, and, and a practice of love and, and not be there for the suffering AIDS patient? But that's the exact same impulse and the exact same motivation of my presidential campaign. It's like could we talk about the fact that millions of American children live in chronic trauma? Could we talk about the fact that we do more to prepare for war and so little in comparison to wage peace? These spiritual and moral principles that make life important, that make us an ethical person, are what make us a moral and ethical nation. And I believe that those principles, if they apply anywhere, they apply everywhere, and that means politics as well. You've been all about this harmony and healing in your professional career, <coughs> but on the international stage, it can be a lot more Hobbesian, to borrow a philosophical a term there. What? 
uh, Hobbesian, the, the idea that it's uh, you know the state of nature. You have self-interested nations, there's power, there's force, and that's a lot of times what carries the day on the international stage. How do you translate what you're doing into dealing with dictators who aren't going to be speaking on that plane? Well, darkness only gets in if you didn't fill the house with light first. And so as Donald Rumsfeld, who was the Secretary of Defense under George Bush said, we have to wage peace. And, and General Mattis said, if you don't fully fund the State Department, I'm going to have to buy more ammunition. What these men were talking about was the fact that while, of course, we have to be prepared for war if war is necessary, of course, we have to have a strong military. And of course, we have to have to deal with the fact that some people just hate us and we have to do what we have to do to protect our homeland, to, to protect our people and to protect our allies. At the same time, you can't just take medicine, you have to cultivate health. So you can't just prepare for war, you have to cultivate peace. And that you do by expanding economic opportunities for women, reducing violence against women, expanding educational opportunities for children, and diminishing human suffering wherever possible. Is diet unimportant? Is lifestyle unimportant? Is exercise unimportant? No. If you don't take care of those things, there will inevitably be sickness. And if we don't take care of the things that I was just telling you about, the humanitarian efforts by which America expresses our own moral leadership and our own stand for humanitarian values and democratic values, then we shouldn't be so surprised that everywhere we look, there's a war here and there's an enemy there. We, I believe, could have done much more over the last 50 years to express the best of who we are and perhaps the worst of other people might not have gotten had its way with us quite so horribly. If you're the commander in chief, would you be willing to use nuclear weapons? Oh, nuclear weapons is a very difficult. I would be willing to do anything necessary to save the American people. I cannot imagine, however, a case where a nuclear weapon does anything but to cause more danger to the American people. How about defense spending? There's a lot that you want to get done on the <coughs> domestic side, and I think necessarily you've described some cuts you'd like to make. What about places like the Portsmouth Naval Shipyard here in New Hampshire that maintains the U.S. submarine fleet? Would we see reductions impact there? Well, I wouldn't say at this point, as a candidate particularly, what I would, uh, whether or not I would want to close one particular military uh, military operation. Obviously, we have to have adequate uh, military operations in order for reasonable reasonable protection of our country. But let's be very clear: there is military spending in this country that is way beyond what the military has even asked for. There is terrible bloat there that I don't blame on the military. I blame on the fact that politicians, because they're advocating more for defense contractors than for an agenda of actual creation of peace on this planet in the next 30 or 50 years. Yes, I do see bloat that has nothing to do with, with reasonable military preparedness. What that means in terms of a particular military installation, I'm not prepared to say at this time. But in terms of, of our military budget of $718 billion a, a, this year alone, particularly as compared with how little in comparison we spend on those humanitarian efforts that create peace, yes, I think there's a terrible imbalance there. And when I'm president, there will be a robust relationship of partnership, such as we have not seen between the State Department and Defense. We need a United States Department of Peace, and we need our Secretary of State to be a world-class humanitarian and diplomat, not the ex-CEO of a multinational fossil fuel company. Since you're coming at this as an outsider, <coughs> are there any former presidents or international leaders to whom you would compare your leadership style? Well, I don't know if I, it might be presumptuous to compare, but I can tell who I would try to emulate. And that's certainly at this time, I think FDR has a lot of resonance. The way he, 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 uh, 
he created the New Deal. We need right now a very a, a fundamental and even massive infusion of economic hope into the veins of our civilization in the form of universal health care and quickly raising the minimum wage and quickly canceling, if not uh, radically renegotiating these college loans and quickly and making college available uh, uh, and free to everyone and quickly. He saw this kind of need for massive effort in terms of taking us out of the depression. I see a need for massive effort in order to stave off, stave off what could otherwise be uh, an economic catastrophe. Now, the other person, the person who's living, is the Prime Minister of New Zealand, Jacinda Ahern, <clears throat> who said that she wants to make New Zealand the best place for a child to live. And she said, I'm not saying the best place to raise a child, I'm saying the best place for a child to live. And I look forward to calling her up and saying, girlfriend, you are on, because we're going to have a fierce competition on that one. Do you think that you're going to get a fair shot at the same kind of moment that we see uh, Andrew Yang or Pete Buttigieg having because you're a woman? You know, I'm not going to go into whining. I'm not going to go into, they don't let me, they're locking me out. I'm seeing people such as yourselves. I'm seeing real journalists, especially on the local levels. But it's starting. I have my CNN town hall. And I feel there's a lot of, a lot of people have said to me, I came in here, Marianne who? And I'm leaving Marianne Wow. Uh, all I'm asking is a fair shot. I'm grateful to those who are giving it to me. And I feel that when I'm given a fair shot, people are smart and they're hearing me and they, I feel heard. Your base is in California, home base, that no, is. No, no. <clears throat> no, I've lived in, in the last two years, I've lived in New York. Okay. And now I'm living in Des Moines, Iowa. <laughs> well, there you go. Hello. You're going to plant yourself there. Do you see yourself as more of an Iowa candidate or a New Hampshire candidate? When you're running for president, you are surrendered to a suitcase. You know, it's interesting, though. I was born and raised in Texas. And in terms of the way I feel, I've lived most of my adult life in California. I've lived a lot in New York. I raised my daughter in Michigan. And I was born and raised in Texas. So... I just feel American. Do you believe in the idea of American exceptionalism? The ideals are exceptional. But you can't, you can't say just because our ideals are exceptional that we are necessarily embodying them. We have to embody and actualize those ideals in every generation, or we can't say America is exceptional in that generation. Hopefully, even in a generation where we're not, the next generation will pick it up again. The ideals are exceptional, yes. Are we behaving that way right now in terms of our domestic and international policy? I'm so afraid not at all, because we're, not, we're too often and in too many ways not aligned with the exceptionalism of our ideals. Marianne Williamson, we thank you for your time on Close Up, and we'll see you out there on the campaign trail. Thank you so much. Do you know Gomer's gollies? Golly! 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 Sergeant, I just can't get over it. Get to know Gomer's gollies on Gomer Pile. Sponsored by Heritage Plumbing, Heating, Cooling, Electric. Last week, Bill Weld made it official. He's launching a Republican primary challenge to President Donald Trump. We caught up with the candidate on a diner tour in Manchester and discussed how he would chart a different path on foreign policy. Bill Weld is back on the first in the nation campaign trail in New Hampshire for his first visit as an officially declared presidential candidate, shaking hands and meeting voters during a series of diner stops. In a one-on-one -on -one interview with News 9, Weld threw down the conservative gauntlet on two issues he believes will separate him from his primary opponent, President Donald Trump. 
He wants to cut government spending and restore a traditional foreign policy that defends liberty and American interests. I'm not for regime change all over the world and being the world's policeman and boots on the ground, but uh, I think uh, the sum of Mr. Trump's policies amounts to a retreat into isolationism. Weld also takes issue with the president's approach to foreign leaders like Vladimir Putin and Kim Jong-un. It's almost as though he hopes that these uh, dictatorial and autocratic features of other countries will come visit the United States of America. That's why I'm so highly motivated. I think the stakes are very high. The stakes are equally high for the small but vocal group of Republicans who've wanted a GOP challenge to the president. This is the moment they've been waiting for, but they acknowledge Weld's task of peeling the party's base away from Trump will be difficult. They don't change their mind, no matter what. This is not a rational uh, decision that they've made. It's emotional. Joining us now to discuss Bill Weld and other First in the Nation headlines, John DeStaso, our political reporter. Good morning, Adam. Thanks for being here, John. So what does a win look like for Bill Weld in New Hampshire in February 2020? That's a good question because uh, 2020 is not 1968 when uh, Eugene McCarthy got up into the 40s against Lyndon Johnson, essentially uh, forcing him out of the re-election uh, talk. 1992, Patrick Buchanan got 38% against uh, George H.W. Bush, and that was viewed as sort of a win for Buchanan, or at least uh, uh, something that was very damaging to the, to the sitting president. Uh, Bill Weld claims that he can win. Of course, that's Bill Weld saying that. I think he's the only one who is. Uh, I would say probably in that neighborhood, Bill Weld gets 35% or whatever. People around the country are going to take notice. Uh, so his goal is to attract the independent votes as well as the hard, uh, some more moderate-leaning Republicans. And he himself has noted that a, a mortal wound politically can be inflicted here in New Hampshire, and that might be kind of what he's setting out to do. Exactly. Uh, endorsements. Do you think we're going to see some of the sort of never-Trumper Republicans in New Hampshire come onto Bill Weld's side, even if they were hoping for John Kasich? I think they'll wait and see what happens uh, and how Bill Weld conducts himself. Uh, I think they would like to. And so I think we could get some endorsements down the road because I don't really see, uh, at this point, it doesn't look like John Kasich's getting in. And uh, even and Larry Hogan, Governor Hogan of Maryland, is coming in this week to New Hampshire. We'll probably learn a lot then as to whether he's thinking about it. He's kind of faded a little bit right now. Endorsements, uh, sure, he'll probably get some. Bill Weld will probably get some uh, never-Trumper endorsements. How effective those end up being for Bill Weld remains to be seen. Shifting gears, Joe Biden looks like he's going to be jumping in. An announcement is supposed to be imminent in terms of launching a campaign. This is a candidate who has struggled, though, in his previous two campaigns in 2008 and then briefly in 1987. Right, and the pressure is totally on Joe Biden, being, of course, obviously the former vice president, uh, just as it is on Bernie Sanders uh, here in New Hampshire, speaking about New Hampshire. Bernie, of course, has, has won New Hampshire. Joe Biden has never really fared that well, although he is a popular figure. Uh, he will be. He will get a lot of splash and a lot of attention, uh, uh, Vice President Biden, when he when he gets in, which will probably be could be this week, could be certainly before the end of the month, and then we'll have to see as sort of the uh, people start looking more closely at his background as they already have. Yeah. So, thanks for joining us for WMUR's The Trail from New Hampshire to the White House. If you have a moment and can write a review or subscribe to this podcast, we'd certainly appreciate it. You can also find us on WMUR.com and our free WMUR app 24-7. See you for the next episode of this podcast next week.